Hi, this is Wyatt Rice. You're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. Um, got one final bit for you this week from the Tony Rice interview sessions that I did that I wanted to share with you. Um, I interviewed Wyatt and... A chunk of that went into the Church Street Blues episode one. But I wanted to put out the full thing because there was more of it. Um, and there's a lot of it that wasn't necessarily related to Church Street Blues, but I just cool stuff and I thought you'd want to hear it. Um, and I kind of realised as I was interviewing Wyatt for this that that, that was going to be the case. So I asked him as we were doing it, would it be okay if I did a, an edited version for the episode and then put out more of this after the fact? Um, and yeah, I just think it's stuff that people are going to want to hear. Um, because it wasn't intended as a standalone interview I've had to edit it around a bit because we sort of moved around between bits and there's a couple of just bits of me and him chatting about how the episode was going to work that you don't need to hear but I've put as much as I can back in and it contains all the stuff that was in the Church Street Blues episode um, but just some more chat about other records about why it's time hanging out with Tony um, some memories, you know, the time they spent in California together and I just wanted to share it um, thanks again to Wyatt for taking the time to do this. I, you know, this was such a cool conversation to get to have. He was warm. He was generous. He was, you know, happy to chat to me and, and share this stuff. And it's a conversation that I treasure, and I'm, I'll never forget. Um, and yeah, just been it's been special, and so I wanted to share it. Uh, here comes my chat with Wyatt Rice. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a while ago to the best of my memory. Uh, the timeline in which a lot of this stuff went down and I always keep keep looking back uh, remembering that we had recorded uh, Church Street Blues before uh, the Backwaters record but I could be wrong about that but that's my memory of it anyway there was a lot happening during that I mean everything happened so quick you know, at the time, Tony, you know, he, of course, he was just living in California and I was living in Florida. So if I, if I back up a little bit in time, uh, he used to send me and my brother Ronnie, you know, tapes and stuff, you know, with the, he would send us rough mixes on cassette to listen to before records came out and stuff. Even when I was about 10, 10 or 11 years old, me and my mom and dad flew out to uh, California to see Tony for a visit. That was really exciting for me uh, at that that young of an age because uh, we had a jam session. The next night, uh, he had David Grisman and Daryl Anger come over, mm. and we had a jam session. And uh, we're going to stay a couple days and then fly back. And then I asked my mom, I said, I'd spoken to Tony about it first. I said, man, I, I'd like to stay. He says, well, see what mom has to say about it. Because <laughs> I was supposed to go home and go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> and then mom says, well, I'm going to talk to dad about it. And he was a little stricter. So <laughs> in the end, I got my way. I got to uh, to stay. And during this time, uh, I actually got to stay a couple of weeks. 
uh, I think Tony and my mom had a lot to do with that, talking my dad into to letting me stay. So that meant me flying back home by myself. And Tony, I remember Tony saying, oh, he, he'll be just fine. Don't worry about it. He said, we'll make sure he gets to the plane. And so you can imagine I'm just, you know, like I said, 10 or 11 during this period. So after mom and dad left, Tony, like every day we went to like Grisman's house. This was during the time that they were uh, rehearsing to do the first David Grisman quintet record. So they would have rehearsals at Grisman's house. And I, I was there for a lot of, you know, all that. And at the same time, Tony was recording a solo record, one just called Tony Rice, that was on Rounder Records. It's the one that had uh, a few songs on it. I can remember, like uh, Banks of the Ohio and uh, the Grisman tune there, uh, Rattlesnake. That 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 happened first, and then I was just blown away as a as a kid about this new acoustic music and kind of knew then I said, man, this is what I want to do <laughs> one of these days. So fast forward in time, you know, when I turned, uh, uh, you know, 16, 16, 17 years old, I used to call Tony up and bug him on the phone. <laughs> he knew that I wanted to play really bad. So, some of the some of the tunes like uh, I learned back then was like one of the first ones is one he wrote. He showed me a few chords to it. Prior to that time, you know, I just knew, you know, some blue you know bluegrass tunes and flat picking tunes and, and such, and nothing too much about that music. That music that I was so excited about. Anyway, yeah. Fast forward to uh, when I was seventeen years old, Tony had called me. And I can't remember, like, like I said, I can't remember absolutely the timeline on this of which record was recorded first. I always keep remembering that it was Church Street. So I was so excited about it. I said, man, I've really hit it big time this time. I said, I'm going to go to a studio and record. <laughs> so Tony uh, flew me out. There was a lot of flying. I mean, I. I like I said, a lot happened, man. I was flying back and forth, you know, two or three times during those years, you know, 1982. And I stayed out there with him for quite a while, almost a year or two. So, yeah, I fly in at the San Francisco, you know, airport, and he picks me up, and we go to his place, and it all happened so quickly, you know. He says, here's the tunes. He says, I want you to play rhythm on these tunes for me, which was Gold Rush, uh, Jerusalem Ridge uh, was one, and Cattle on the Cane. And there was another one that was a vocal tune that had to be the, the last one that was recorded. That was uh, the end of the night. That's the last one he did on the record was one called Prada Man. And I wasn't expecting to play any rhythm on that. And this happened in a period of like, you know, a, a short time span of, you know, three, three days. 
after the whole record. Right. If my memory recalls right. So I was just in, uh, in heaven, man. I was so happy to be there doing what I'm, I was doing, even though if it's just, you know, playing rhythm. Uh, and the rhythm playing on that record is, is brilliant. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like somebody's first time in the studio or it doesn't, there's no, you know, the quality of the rhythm playing is, I, you can't imagine anybody else having gone in and done it better. It works perfectly on that record. It's astonishing to hear that that was pretty much one of your first experiences of being in the studio. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I was in, for me, I was like in heaven uh, doing this. Uh, and I didn't have a worry in the world that I wasn't nervous or anything. Uh, back during that time, I was just so excited about it. At the time, you know, he was living in, uh, uh, Corta Madeira, California. And in his house there, we went, you know, one night we had, you know, messed around and played, played the tunes. Gold Rush, I kind of already knew. And Jerusalem Ridge and Cat on the Cane was one that I wasn't too familiar with, but we sit there and practice, you know, went over it a few times and that was basically it. Hmm. And and then the next day we went to the studio and started recording it and we'd record a take it one or two takes of it. Then that was it. And, uh, he would keep the, you know, the best take and it was all, you know, live. It was no, no overdubs or nothing. So very exciting. And did it feel so talking to other people about that record? Um, it feels to people like it was really different from everything else Tony was doing at that time, to the extent that he, he said in Tim Stafford and Caroline Wright's book, he took it to the label and they weren't that interested in it. So he took it somewhere else. You know, yeah. it feels like listening back for me, it's such a perfect record, but it feels like it was not what people yeah. were expecting. Yeah, I recall some of that too of him. Uh, being on the phone, you know, making phone calls to, uh, to rounder. And I remember him being kind of upset about it. Although I didn't really say anything. I'm just in the background, you know, trying to practice guitar. I had my own little room. So, but I'd kind of overheard some stuff and he come out. And I was kind of asking him about it. And he says, man, he said, and he was telling, you know, me been, that they didn't think that was the right direction for him to take right then was to do a solo record. They wanted like another bluegrass record type record. He kind of got, uh, he was a little mad about it. So I think he, you know, he made something else happen. He made a phone call to Barry, Barry Paul's, at Sugar Hill, and they they said yes, we'll do it, Tony. So, <laughs> and that's that's how that 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 came along. And I, so it always makes me think now. I mean, it, I think it's one of his one of the more. I mean, all of his records are really good. I mean, but that one being a solo record, do you think that? Uh, 
I know probably after it came out, I bet Rounder wishes now that they would have done it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I don't know. And I, a couple of people I've spoken to, like Bob, I spoke to Bob Minner um, about this, and a couple of people said one of the things that makes that record special is that Tony didn't really do another one like it. It's not like yeah. one in a long line of singer songwriter style albums. It's it's special because it was a one off. Yeah. He already had, you know, he had it planned out what he wanted to do and had it, you know, orga- he, he he already knew in his head exactly what, what he wanted to do for that record. So, and previous records, you know, and the ones after that too. Yeah, he always had a, a, you know, in his mind exactly what he wanted to do. And do you remember... Um which guitars you used on Church Street Blues? I'm guessing Tony probably played the, D- the D28. Yes, he used his D28. At the time, I had a 68 D18 I used on uh, on Church Street Blues. And I also used it some on Backwaters, too, with the exception of one song. Because on the Backwaters record, he used an ovation on a lot of cuts, with the exception of uh, two or three tunes. I know in the book it says one tune, but there was, there's two other tunes I think he used that used that on on the Backwaters record when uh, there's, I mean he had both guitars there, but there's something about the ovation he that's one of the first guitars like when I showed up at his place that I seen it was like the couch guitar it was in the it was he had it laying up in his chair in the living room. And it's the first time I'd ever seen one. Hmm. Uh, and I said, man, what's this? And he said, that's an ovation. And uh, he kept it all out all the time and was, was playing on it and practicing on it. So I kind of looked at it for a few minutes and then played down and I said, man, uh, I want to see you. Where's the Martin at? <laughs> <laughs> At a young age like that, I didn't know what was going on with the ovation. I just, uh, it played okay, but it didn't sound like, you know, a dreadnought. Uh, or at least during that time period, I didn't. I didn't learn until later on, and, you know, it's what he's seen in those guitars. They're real easy to play, and they re- recorded very well, so. And I guess if you've got two guitars going on at the same time and one of them's a D28, one's an ovation, they're going to take up slightly different spots in the mix for each other. Yeah. But he had a way of doing it with his, you know, with his right hand on some stuff. You can't tell which one is which. (laughs) Depending on what the tune is, I guess. I think that's the thing is that that idea that the tone comes from the player. That's sort of the perfect example of it. If you can't tell if it's a dreadnought or innovation, then that tells you where the tone's coming from, doesn't it? Yes. For Church Street Blues, you know, we had already recorded. Uh, I know the the songs that I recorded on the rhythm parts had already been done. I I thought I was finished. And he had done his solo stuff in there, and I was in the control room the whole time, you know, just hanging out, watching this all go down. So, and when it came to the last tune on the on the third night, the third or fourth night, maybe, 
I can't remember. I'm going to say the third night because I believe it was three days. Uh, the last tune that he played was uh, Pride of Man. So he went and played it. And he came in the control room after he finished the tune and got Bob Shoemaker to play it back a couple couple times. He says, you know what? He said, uh, he looks at me, he says, Wyatt, he says, go in there and sit where I sit. And he says, my D28's right there. He said, get my D28. And he said, on Pride of Man, that, soon, that song I just recorded, he said, when I take my solo there, he said, I want you to play rhythm behind me. So I said, okay. I had never played the tune before, but I had heard it, you know, in the control room. So I knew the, I already knew the, in my head, I knew the changes already. So I sit down and just played the rhythm to, to that, uh, what he wanted. That was one of those spur of the moment things that I wasn't expecting. So, but it, it worked out pretty good. I was pretty excited about that, the way, and that's the last thing that went on the record. <laughs> it's amazing because it's one of those that you listen to now and people are still discovering that record to this day. And if you get people to list the records where everything's like, there's not a note out of place, everything hangs together beautifully, it's all perfect, it just sounds so together. The idea that you just sort of went in, picked up Tony's guitar and played some rhythm on a song you hadn't played before. And that's, yeah, you know, part of the record. Spur, spur of the moment thing. He was kind of celebrating that the, you know, the record was over and he was, had a smile on his face in the control room. Uh, when he looked at me, I'll never, never forget it. Uh, it's one of those things that always sticks with, sticks with you, you know, that I'll never, I'll never forget any of it. That, that was some of the best highlights of my being around Tony back then doing that stuff was also new to me. It was just so exciting, you know, and especially when backwaters came around and then all the other stuff that we did like in between times, you know, the, the memories of, uh, stuff we used to go out and do. We used to, we would go to San Francisco, you know, and he had a, you know, a 1970 Dodge challenger that he called space grass. <laughs> that was the name of the car. So, uh, we'd go to San Francisco and he took me to different places. We'd go hang out at tower records then and buy some records and bring them home. And we would listen to them. And there's so much other stuff we did. Uh, we went to the great American music hall and got to see Oscar Peterson trio play, uh, you know, live. He had gotten his tickets for, for that event. And that was one of his favorite piano players. One thing he taught me very well at that, that age of 17 is he turned me on to a lot of jazz music because that's what he listened to mainly. There's a lot of, you know, John Coltrane and um, Oscar Peterson, several records. And he likes, you know, different bass, you know, Bill Evans and one of his favorite bass players was uh, Niels Pedersen. 
So any record that he had him on, you know, played bass on, he had so many jazz records. During the day, if we wasn't playing guitar or practicing or doing, we were doing other stuff. We were, you know, out and about doing stuff or either that or listening. But if he put a record on to listen to, we would sit there and listen to it. And if I, if I like said anything or if anybody else said anything, he would go back into the room there on the turntable and take the needle and put it back and then start the track over again. He says, he says, now he says, let's listen again. He says, really listen to what's happening. It sort of sounds from a few bits that I've read that Tony found church street blues quite hard to make just from the point of view of being so exposed all the time and used to being in a band situation in a band setting that he so found that quite a challenge. Yeah. I think it's something that he, you know, that like he had already worked up before I'd got there that he, like I said, that he knew uh, what he wanted to do and had, had the tunes worked up the way that he wanted to uh, record them. There was periods of time, you know, when, he came to Florida and stayed with me for a while uh, after going through a hard time that we would go out to some friends and he would bring his guitar and he would, he loved to sit down and play and, and sing some solo stuff. We did that quite often. Very good times. Uh, if I, I keep referring back to that Oscar Peterson show, um, he was good friends there with uh, with some of the, the folks there at the great American music hall. And, uh, prior to that show, um, I'd ask him, uh, tower tower records was pretty close by. And I said, man, do we have, I said, I don't, I said, do you think there may be a chance that we I could get an autograph? He says, man, he says, you don't have a record. He says, he says, let's swing by tower. And I said, you run, he, he said, run in there and get you find an Oscar Peterson record that you might like. So I did. Got back in the car and we, we proceeded to the gig. And then that, that's when I asked him, I said, what are our chances? He says, man, he says, he said, you see that guy back there guarding the door? He says, I know him. <laughs> and he said, I think that he, he will let us back to the dressing room. So we went down there and uh, sure enough, the guy did. He was nice enough. He said, sure, Tony. He says, y'all, you guys could come in. And as soon as he opened the door, I mean, I'll never forget it. He's, there stood Oscar Peterson. It's a real humble guy. He had his towel in his hand, man. He was like soaking with sweat, wiping his face off. At that time, you know, he was one of my heroes after hearing him play so much. And Tony made the compliment. He says, man, he says, you're one of my heroes. He says, man, he says, you, you, you played your ass off tonight. <laughs> <laughs> And then and him being so humble, he says, yeah. And he said, you also, you, you heard all the notes that I missed up there tonight. And it's like, oh, my God. Uh, we didn't hear him miss any notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I politely, I said, Mr. Peterson, I said, would you, I said, is there any way that you would sign my record here? And he doesn't, didn't hesitate. He looked at me and he says, you his brother, right? And I said, yeah. And uh, 
he signed my record. It was something. That's one of, one of the highlights. Uh, like I said, there were so many. Uh, we we were into photography back then. I'd gotten a camera, and Tony was looking at getting a camera back then too. We got into different hobbies, you know, like taking pictures. He took it to the, another level than I than I did. And then there was the Rubik's Cube thing that we got into for a while. He had figured it out on his own. And I'd bought one when I was in Florida trying to figure the thing out. And I'd gotten to some one point to where I could not get the very last one or two colors. So then it was time to fly out there. And he says, man, he says, you got you. Did you figure out the cube thing? I said, man, I said, I almost did. He said, man, I finally figured it out on the airport uh, in one of the shops, magazine shops there. I mean, uh, I'd bought a book. They had one on the Rubik's Cube that had directions. <laughs> so I finally looked at the book and figured out the last two I had to do. And then he he went out and bought a book. Too. He bought a different one than I had. So we had two books on these. I mean, this is how serious we were into this little <laughs> Ruby's Cube thing. So we we would have contests to see which one could get the get it solved the fastest. And he, we, he, we would time each other. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Like I said, a lot of good memories like that. And we would drive out, you know, uh, he would take me up to, uh, what they call, uh, Mount Tam, Tamapias. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. Cause I was asking him about Manzanita one day. I was asking him about names of tunes and stuff. And I said, where did Manzanita come from? He said, well, that's a shrub. You know, it's a plant that grows here in the West. He said, let's get in the car. And he says, I'll go, he says, I'll show you one. So we drive, you know, he takes me up to Mount Tam and pulls over this place and we get out of the car. And then he shows me the, the shrub, you know, it's a tree shrub called Manzanita. And he said, that's what I named the tune after. It's really cool. It's really cool to think for like 40 years on like so many people view Tony and that music, the way he viewed Oscar Peterson back at that show and that, you know, just approaching somebody to tell them how much you enjoyed their gig. Do you think, do you think Tony felt that people held him in that sort of regard? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Tony was a real humble guy too. He, you know, if somebody gave him a compliment, he would, uh, I guess depending on how the show went or whatever. Uh, a lot of musicians were, were, were our most, you know, critic or whatever, you know. Yeah. Versus the audience, you know, may come up and say, man, y'all, y'all played great. And, and we're, I'm back shaking my head. I said, golly, I mean, you know, I messed up made mistakes during the show or whatever. But, uh, and Tony would do that same thing sometimes, you know, and 
if somebody gave him a compliment, he says, he says, I don't know. We had a messed up sound system or he says, it wasn't happening tonight or probably the reality for the audience was it was a, a great show. <laughs> yeah. But after we, like I said, after we finished the record, it's like, man, I said, woo. I thought I was really something. I said, man, I got to play on a record with my brother. And I was so tickled with that. I mean, I was like, man, this is great. And that, that time being 17, uh, I'm thinking now, I said, golly, I got to go back to Florida and go back to the shipyard. It's like after doing this, uh, something clicked in my brain. It's like, you know what? I want, This is, I'd already made up my mind before that kind of, but this is like the icing on the cake after being in the studio. It was like, it's, man, this is, I want to play music with my brother, Tony. And I said, I'm going to, do everything in my I can to make that happen. <laughs> uh, Matt, there's so much that went on during that time period, during that year of 82 and even up to 83. Things happened so quickly. I could probably write a book about it, the stuff that we did. I mean... <laughs> Do you know, I think that's a book people would probably like to read. There's this, I'll tell you this, this is a funny story real quick. Um, so we're at his house there in, in Corte Madeira and, uh, it wasn't a huge place, you know, it was a two bedroom, one bathroom place and it had a fireplace and I had my own little room in the back that he put me in, uh, to, to practice in, uh, during the backwaters thing. Cause I had to really learn some complex chords in a short period of time. So I was, he would show me the tunes, you know, the chords to the tunes that I was, you know, playing on. And plus the other tunes on previous records too, because we also had a couple gigs around the time period. So not only had to learn the, the tunes for back orders that we had to record on the chords, but the chords for the other tunes. <laughs> So we'd have two 45-minute sets of uh, material. I was constantly back in that room from the time I got up, which is usually, you know, late morning. Tony was a night owl, so it was, we'd stay up pretty pretty late, get up and have some coffee or whatever, and then I would sit in that room and practice what he had showed me on those tunes, like, all day long. And then when I thought I got it right, I'd come in there and play it for him, and he'd sit down and play the lead. And I always figured that, Prior records to to that album, if you if you listen to them, like Still Inside, and Acoustics, and uh, even some stuff on Manzanita, on some of his solos, you will hear a rhythm guitar, and it's him. He would overdub rhythm over his lead stuff to fill up that void of an empty sound. So. I always figured that he wanted his rhythm behind his lead. <laughs> so when he called me up to do Backwaters, he had commented on me. He says, man, he says, I'm getting you to do this because you're the only guy that 
he says, you, you play rhythm like me. <laughs> and he said, that's what I want behind my thing, uh, lead. Uh, so I learned so much from just not sitting there playing with him, but I learned a lot from just listening to him practice. Cause I was in another room with the door closed, trying to learn the, t- the chords to the tune and play rhythm. And then once he was in the other room practicing in the living room. So I take a break every once in a while and just come in there and sit down and he, he wouldn't say a word. He'd just sit there and just be practicing. And I would sit there and watch him just play. And I've learned a lot from just watching him play. Then again, you know, we were, we were brothers. So. And is that sort of where the, the sort of similarity in rhythm styles came from? You just seeing, listening to him play in those sort of settings. Cause your, your rhythm playing sounds a, a huge amount like Tony's in some instances. Yeah, I, I, it was nothing I was aware of. It was something I think I naturally learned by just listening to him. And then I would go and I would hear what he played and then go back in the room and then play, try to play that what I heard. And after a while it, it, of practicing, you know, eight it was a lot of practice, you know, I'd practice seven or eight hours a day, every day. And I was so into the rhythm and the chords. It was something new and exciting besides just G, C and D. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These were complex chords for me at the time. So, but I'd always figured it in the back of my head, you know, and he never, you know, gave me any guidance as far as, other than just showing me the chords and they'd play the rhythm and I'd hear the rhythm, but the main focus was on me fingering the chords. Sometimes he would tell me the name of the chord and the other times he would say, Hey, just put your fingers here, here and here and play this chord. (laughs) And I didn't know the name of the chord, (laughs) even though I'd taken the, I mean, I'd had music theory class in middle school and high school, but it was not, not for guitar. I, had learned how to read music and took uh, music theory. But when I went to go apply what I learned on the guitar, was like a different thing. So <laughs> those years I played uh, alto sax and bassoon and, you know, high school. And um, it's been a great, great life for me. But I mean, all the years, you know, then a- after that things started you know, he had other things going on, like you said, the bluegrass album band. And then it came to a point where um, he wanted to do a unit band and make a go of that. That actually started out as a, we were going to do this duet thing for a little while and do a tour. And we actually did do a couple of shows up in Canada that were based off the Church Street Blues record. And it was just me and him at the time. And the country gentleman happened to be at one of the gigs up in Canada that we went to. And I think he had already been been talking to Jimmy Gaudreau. They had been friends for a long time, since the 70s. But Jimmy Gaudreau had been playing, you know, with the country gentleman. So we had this gig up in Canada. It was me and Tony playing this dude to guitar thing, you know, and he was going to, 
was based off of Church Street Blues and a few other tunes. And while we were there, he, I think we played a few tunes and then we took a break and then he went back and asked Jimmy Goodrow, he says, man, you want to get up and play a few tunes with me and Wyatt? And Goodrow said, yeah. And then after the show, you know, they talked more about it. And then the next thing I know, we, it all, like it, it happened so quick. Next thing I know, Jimmy's, he's, we got a, somebody that's booking shows for us. And then Tony had asked Jimmy, he says, man, you know, a good bass player. And he says, yeah, he says, I know this guy named Mark Schatz. And so the next gig we played at, we got a a band with Jimmy Goodrow and Mark Schatz. And then that particular unit right there was formed. I mean, that's an amazing few years. <laughs> yeah. And that was really, really exciting times for me. Uh, all of it was. And I, I miss him dearly, so... Yeah, but Church Street Blues was a fun record to to do and, you know, be a part of. And I'm glad I got to do it. Well, I think we're all, we're all glad you did as well because it's just such a well-loved record from so many people. Yeah. Just the, the affection with which people talk about it when, um, when I interview them for this thing is it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it's one of my favorite records, but I can't really say I have any favorites because I, I like them all, and I was so lucky to play on a lot of them, you know, even though if, uh, I looked at myself primarily as a rhythm player, so I gave every bit of my concentration into rhythm because I knew that's what he's a, you know, that was my gig. But every once in a while, he knew if there was a place for a solo and he he would look at me and he says, why don't you take a solo on this tune? I said, okay. <laughs> so I got to do that. Uh, and do some lead stuff too. Like I said, there, there's so much, Matt, I could tell you. I could, it would be a, I could make a book out of it. A lot of stuff we did, we you know, like hanging out with Grisman and we, Todd, the bass player, he would come over and hang out with Tony and we'd do different stuff together and listen, listen to records. And I know one time, let's see, this may have been the younger time when I was 10 or 11, when we went to Santa Cruz to this amusement park thing, me, it's Tony and I and Daryl Anger and got on this roller coaster thing. <laughs> On the beach there in Santa Cruz, which is pretty cool. Uh, stuff like that, you know, we got to do uh, all kinds of things and see different musicians play. He was very aware. He'd get the paper and keep up with the one time the, Os the Osborne brothers were playing out there, Bobby and Sonny. And uh, this one night out of the blue, he says, Man, he says, the Osborne brothers are going to be there tonight at this place. I think it was close to San Francisco or whatever. He said, man, he said, Brian, come on. He said, get in the car. And he said, let's go down there and see him. And he, we didn't have no tickets or nothing. He didn't do anything. 
he just drove up to the back door of this gig and started knocking on the door <laughs> and blowing a hole. Uh, Sonny Osborne opened up the door. <laughs> and we went and he says, well, what in the world are you doing here, Tony? He says, man, he says, I come here to see if I could get in. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a way about him. He would go to the back door. That, that was kind of cool stuff like that. Really good memories. You should write that book. I think people would like that. And people probably haven't heard a lot of this from you recently. Like I had a look for the podcasts and stuff and there's not much out there. Yeah. I've been, been kind of silent and mad about, I mean, uh, about everything, uh, since his death, I just figured I know when the time is right to, to do something. So I know you haven't spoken much in the last couple of years. So thank you for doing this. It means a lot. Yeah. I think you may be the first one I have. So, and I, I, you know, I totally get it. Everybody else I'm talking to is talking about their musical hero and I'm talking to you about your brother. And I know it's, you know, I know what that means. I know it's not, I know it's a big ass. Yeah. And I'm very grateful that you've taken the time. Yeah. Oh, man, thank you, man. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.